Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. Let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, old, from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of, this is the word of God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Brady. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Ryan, and along with Brian, uh, I have the, the privilege to serve Redeemer as one of our pastors and elders. Um, Brady is also an elder here, uh, along with Chris, who is walking to a classroom with a handful of children, um, and Joel. Joel, would you mind? Thank you, Joel. Uh, and Joe, who is, is sitting over here. The six of us serve together as elders of Redeemer. Um, at Redeemer, our purpose for elders, the reason that we have elders is not necessarily to make um, decisions like a, a board of counselors or anything like that, um, but it's to serve you. The elders here are to lead and shepherd uh, the church they're appointed by Jesus, so we collectively sit under the authority of Jesus. When we make a decision, we make a decision together. Um, we, we call it mutual submission or plurality, which is kind of just some highfalutin words for uh, we work together under Jesus' authority. Uh, and so we do a lot of praying and a lot of seeking, a lot of listening to him and, and to one another. But the purpose of that is to care for you is to lead you, to shepherd you, to pray for you, um, to sit with you in crisis, to cry with you when you're sad, to rejoice with you when you celebrate, um, and, and to ultimately lead this church to center your lives on Christ. That's the purpose of elders at Redeemer. Um, our passage this morning has nothing to do with eldership, um, but I just wanted to share that, and we like to remind uh, one another often about what, what are the things that kind of define us, what do we care about, what are our values, but also how do we do things. So from time to time, we'll just explain or define something um, on a Sunday morning. We felt like that was an important one today. So like Brady read, we're in Micah 4 and 5, starting in Micah 4 9, and our passage goes into um, the end of Micah 5 6. Um, this passage fits into a three-part movement of hope that kind of sits towards the, uh, the back end of, of Micah. It's a little bit after the halfway point numerically, um, but it's considered the halfway point of Micah, this three-part movement of hope. Last week, we talked a lot about the assurance that we have in the gospel, 
that, we, uh, that God is good, that we belong to him, and that the resurrection is sure. Those are things that we can hang on to, cling to um, as we climb the hill of life and trust Jesus to just take us to the top when the time comes. Uh, this week, we're going to be focusing on God as a deliverer. And there's a purpose for God as deliverer being the, the centerpiece of that three-part movement of hope. It has a lot to do with the resurrection. So we're going to talk about the resurrection. And as we lead up into Easter on March 31st, we're going to be reiterating this message of, of God's justice and mercy and what it has to do with the resurrection. And so our passage today uh, really focuses on God as deliverer. And when we talk about God as deliverer, what we mean is that God rescues and saves his children. He rescues and saves his children. Now, there's some things that we've got to understand about deliverance in order to really see God as deliverer and worship him as deliverer, appreciate him as deliverer, but also to relate to him as our deliverer. We can call ourselves a Christian and not necessarily relate to God in this way. And so there's two things. I only have a two-point sermon today. Can you believe it? But we're still going to go the full time. Don't worry. First, deliverance is necessary. We need a deliverer. God only saves the people that need saving. So we, we've got to get to this point where we think about our need, right? And, and I'm going to caveat this with we don't actually know what we need. God knows what we need. But think about the things that you most need, okay? Um, I'm on a series of medications for chronic disease, and if I stop taking those medications at any point uh, and just continued not taking them, my health and quality of life would quickly deteriorate. Um, I'd go to the hospital. I wouldn't last long um, off of those medications. My wife and my kids are incredibly important to me. I have a paycheck, praise God, by his grace that pays my bills and puts food in our fridge and and brings life to my family. If I were to lose any of, the, any of these things, it would be devastating, right? It, it would wreck my life to lose my medication, my family, or financial security that I have. But even considering those three things and how important they are to my life, they are not what I need. What I most need is for my soul to be cared for and saved by Jesus. I need to be saved from my sin. So deliverance is necessary, but deliverance is also forever. Deliverance is forever. What God saves us from has no chance of coming back and destroying our lives. Right? Like, Let's just stop for a second and recognize that we all have said things and done things in our past that we're not, not only ashamed of, but we're anxious will come back and ruin our present and threaten our future, right? Some of us live with this constant anxiety that that's going to happen. And I don't want to just gloss over the fact that there are consequences in life, 
there are, are real and, and good. It's God's justice that there are consequences for our sin. But as you stand before God, your salvation is not on the line. Jesus took care of all of that. Your past cannot threaten your future. Your sin cannot ruin your new life in Christ. When you put your hope in Jesus, deliverance is forever. Deliverance is necessary and deliverance is forever. So as we look at this passage, um, these verses in Micah 4 and 5, and we remember the context, right? The, The historical context of this passage. We've been talking the first three chapters of Micah has a lot to do with judgment God calling out Israel's sin. So what was that sin? We boiled it down in the, one of the first sermons. Uh, the, the sin was really idolatry of self. They had restored worship back to Israel. Um, and so God gave them some blessings. God gave them some economic prosperity. And in that economic prosperity, they actually began to get really comfortable and, and sought to be self-sufficient in that. They built this kingdom for themselves where God had called them to build a kingdom to glorify himself. And so instead of purifying their worship and putting away the false idols, Israel had just basically brought God's worship into um, the nation along with all the other idols, diminishing the glory of God and raising the glory of false gods. And that wasn't even in service of any of these spiritual beings. It was in service of themselves. Israel had pursued an independent, self-sufficient kingdom where they didn't need God anymore. They were secularizing themselves. And so we had, in identifying their false worship as an idolatry of self, we're able to now identify ourselves with Israel. Right? Because we build up these kingdoms on our own, these kingdoms of self-sufficiency and independence. It's the American dream. Not only are we taught to do this, and it's not a bad thing to do that financially and economically, but it is false worship when we believe we don't need God. The historical of context was that God had seen Israel's sin and called his prophet Micah to call it out, to correct them and to say, repent and turn back to me because if you don't, your sin will kill you. And instead of your sin killing you, I'm gonna send you into exile. I'm gonna, I'm gonna graciously, but in my justice, correct you. And that's exactly what happened. And so here, Israel sits with this promise of exile, this looming army of Assyria uh, coming for them, this, this brutal and powerful military force. Deliverance is necessary because like Assyria sat on the borders of Israel ready to invade, our sin crouches at the door and its desire is for us. Deliverance is necessary. So let's look first at Micah 4, 9. 
Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Um, I hesitate to say that God is sarcastic because I feel like we all have mixed feelings about sarcasm. But um, him asking this question is... uh, It's not mocking Israel, but it's emphasizing the fact that no, they don't have a king. The king who was in the lineage of David, this this promised lineage that was meant to bring blessing to the world and glory to Israel to glorify God, the king had been removed. Uh, There were some relational ties with some uh, outside nations that the king of Israel had. And they got him. They, they tricked him into a, a relationship that made him feel comfortable. They lured him out of Jerusalem and they killed him. They killed him in a disgraceful way. And so God says, now why do you cry aloud? Don't you have a king? And the point of him asking this question was to show Israel they had put their hope in that king. They had put their hope in their man-led leader, like their, their king had counselors, their king had these people around them that would um, help advise them, kind of like the president has the other branches of the United States government. And so him saying, aren't you, don't you have somebody to lead you? And all they can say is, no, we don't have a king in us. And it's to show them that they were never meant to have a human king, that God was meant to be their king. All throughout scripture, uh, we actually see another one of these themes here. So him asking this question and then immediately going into, uh, has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? The, The labor motif, this theme actually runs throughout scripture. You see it in um, a husband and a wife struggling to have a baby in scripture, right? Abraham and Sarah, the promise that was given to Abraham to a man who had no children, the promise of many nations given to a man who was in his 90s and had no kids. That doesn't make sense. But we also see it in the very beginning with some conversations between um, Eve and God. And this labor theme throughout scripture is constantly calling back to Genesis 3. Um, So Adam and Eve, right, they sinned. They took the fruit of the knowledge, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They tried to get God's stuff without God. They wanted to be like, they wanted to be God, not be like God, what he had already given them. They wanted to have his authority without his relationship. And in that sin, they had multiplied sin. So they, they began to be fruitful and multiply, right? They had Cain and Abel, their first two sons. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they took the fruit. God promised them, this won't always be your story. I'll restore you. I'm gonna send a redeemer. And it'll be through the seed of the woman, which linguistically is odd because everywhere, almost everywhere else in scripture, when it talks about the seed, it's the seed of man. The the lineage passes through the husband, the father, but in this case, it passes through Eve, the seed of the woman. And it's a a pre-gospel that talks about the Virgin Mary. 
that we're looking ahead while also looking behind. And so thinking about this um, seed of the woman and this labor motif, Cain kills Abel almost immediately after, right? Then we know, okay, so it's not Abel who's going to be the redeemer from sin, and it's definitely not Cain, because Abel's dead, Cain's a murderer, so who is this one, this perfect one from God that will redeem us from our sin? And then Adam and Eve bear Seth. And in uh, Genesis 4, Eve says, oh, now God has given me a seed. He has appointed to me a seed. And she puts her hope in Seth being the deliverer of their sin. But then we have like all of this of scripture. So clearly that's not true. But it's that longing for the deliverer. It's that maybe this is the one. Is it Seth? No, it's not Seth. Is it Noah? Nope, it's not Noah. It's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not Joseph. It's not David. It's not Joshua. The story goes on in this longing for a redeemer, the Messiah, the one that would save all of humanity from sin and death and Satan. This longing continues. And it is carried all throughout the story of Israel. And we see it here in Micah 4 and 5. He taps into this story, this heritage, not not of having a redeemer, but waiting for one. Not of strength, but of need. Is there no king in you? No, there's not. We need one. God, would you send us a king? This is the conversation that's meant to happen in this passage. I want to just remind us about sin because um, I feel like we, a lot of times, define sin as the bad things that we do, and we focus more on our action than really just the state of our souls. And the reality is sin is more, it is the bad things that we do, but it's more than that. It's, It's this this tendency that we have, this bent within us that we can't put away, that hurts ourselves, that hurts other people, that um, fails to love God and love others well. But sin is also what happens to you. And God acknowledges that here uh, in Scripture. Um, In verse 11, Now many nations are assembled against you. He's speaking to Israel. Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. God is acknowledging that the nations around Israel really just want to destroy her. They want to sin against God and sin against Israel. And sometimes when when we're really affected by our sin, just acknowledging that we need a deliverer is, is something that can bring restoration and not necessarily glory or honor, but just like um, dignity to the fact that you've been sinned against, right? Not, there's not a single person in this room that has not felt the pain of being sinned against. You felt the pain of your own actions. You felt the pain of, of others' actions towards you. And 
God doesn't just say, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna erase that from your history. But he says, I'm gonna restore and redeem it. I'm not going to just wipe out, uh, like I've said before, like he doesn't just men in black you and, and you don't remember your sadness anymore. No, in Revelation, it says that he wipes away your tear. He's your comforter. Deliverance is necessary. He actually says here, um, In verse 10, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. When he pushes Israel out of the land of promise and they wonder, has our sin come back to threaten our future? Has our false worship put in jeopardy the promise of the Messiah? As they're leaving their homes that are burned behind them, God says, there you will be rescued. In your weakness, I will save you. There's something in us that requires God to do this for us. It requires God to show us our need because sin in us, this tendency, this bent we have in our soul is pulling us into independence from God and self-sufficiency. And one of the ways that I know that I'm being pulled by my sin into independence from God and self-sufficiency is when I just feel tired of praying, when I don't really feel like I need to pray. There's something in me that doesn't, I'm not aware that I need God. I'm not aware that I need forgiveness. I'm not aware that I need the Holy Spirit in me. And so when you don't, when you find yourself not praying, a good thing to ask yourself is, am I fully aware that I need God? Or am I living in self-sufficiency and independence from him? And that's an important question, more important than even just asking the question is being honest with your answer. Prayer is giving up our way. Um, I've been reading through this Lent resource that I sent an email about. If you're not on our email list, um, Brian referenced the connect cards in the, the chair backs in front of you. If you are not on our email list and you want to be, even if you've been coming here for a while, fill one of those out and put it in a Dropbox or hand it to somebody with a blue lanyard. Um, Because from time to time, not only do we share announcements, but I shared out this Lent resource that we're walking through. Um, And it's from this um, organization called Dwell, who is a, they have an app that just reads the Bible to you. And they, this resource is for free. One of the things that they said in this resource It just struck me. It was actually this morning's devotional. And as I was praying for um, you and for me and for the sermon, this line just hit me and I had to put it in. The closer we get to Jesus, the more aware we become of our need for healing and redemption. The closer we get to Jesus, the more aware we become of our need for healing and redemption. And so self-sufficiency and independence pulls us away from being aware 
of what's really true about us. And prayer taps into that need of healing and redemption. It brings another layer of awareness. Prayer is giving up our way. And so we actually need to repent of self-sufficiency and independence. We need to confess that it's actually there in our weakness that we'll be rescued. It's in our need for salvation and redemption that God will save us. Um, there is no like progression of better, faster, stronger, not spiritually speaking. As we grow in Christ, we don't grow more impressive. We grow more impressed. We don't grow, like, the reason I'm saying this is because we have, we carry this shame that puts us in this state of our soul to need to make up for it and be better Christians I've got to get better at praying. I've got to get better at reading my Bible. I need to memorize more things. I've got to be better at coming to church. I've got to be better at community, whatever it is. We think we have to get better and that that's the aim of Christianity is this progression. And it's not. It's actually the reverse. It's less of me, more of Jesus A better Christian is, like if you read the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. That does not make sense. Happy are the sad. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the lowly. This is the kingdom that that Jesus comes and he brings. And in Mark 1.15 when he says, repent, confess your sin, humble yourself. The kingdom's here. Deliverance is necessary and deliverance is forever. Um, In the middle of this passage, uh, this emphasis on hope, we're pointed again to the future hope of the resurrection. I I have been surprised how much of the resurrection we've been preaching on through this series, and I'm grateful for it, Um, but I'm, I'm honestly surprised. I thought it would be more like, hey, you're sinners, and I would be getting emails and like people knocking on the door. But it's, it's been resurrection, which uh, after a couple of conversations last week was like, man, that's what we, our souls have needed, just to be encouraged of our assurance that Jesus has us. And so that's not different. Deliverance is forever. That's not different in, in this passage. In uh, Micah 4.12 is where we'll start with that. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. This is a conversation about the enemies, right? So um, Israel, God says, muster your troops and rise up against your enemies because they don't know what I'm about to do. They don't have any idea. And so if we go back to this story in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, uh, but really all humanity willingly accepts slavery to sin. We walk straight into bondage to sin and Satan. Um, God was not caught off guard. 
They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand his plan. God was not caught off guard by Adam and Eve's sin. He's not caught off guard by your sin. He's not surprised that your past follows you and makes you terribly afraid and anxious. He's not caught off guard because from the beginning of time, he had a plan. He had a savior. He had the Messiah locked and loaded. And we actually see in uh, verse three of chapter five, therefore he shall give them up until the time. I had a friend in college ask me, why did Jesus, the Messiah, come in first century Jerusalem? And why did he live to be 33? Why, did, why was the cross at his, in his 33rd year? And it drove me nuts. Like I looked through scripture for years, literally years. He moved away to Dallas and I was stuck here just looking for the answer. And a few years ago, actually, when we were in Abilene, I texted him and I was like, until the time was fulfilled. That's the answer. This is like 10 years after the fact. And I said, your question is because there is a fullness of time. God's plan does not make sense to us, to um, Satan, to the powers of darkness. It doesn't make sense to us. And and it's, it's not because we're so dumb, but because he works in ways that are upside down. The kingdom is an upside down kingdom. The the Beatitudes, like I mentioned before, happy are the sad, what? Favored are the persecuted, hold on. Like, let's, let's pause and think about that. The kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Look at um, 1 Corinthians 1, 27. This just shows the character of God and how it lasts There's a a big seminary word called immutable. Can you say that? Immutable? Immutable. It means God never changes. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 connects with Micah and says God never changes. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. We just sang a song. It was like, yeah, heaven thought it, or hell thought that it beat heaven. But it was actually through the death of the Messiah that he was able to save. It was through seeming defeated, being humiliated, despised, and shamed that Israel was restored and that the rest of the world was blessed and restored right along with it. God's plan was to use the weak to shame the strong, to use the humble to defeat the proud, and to exalt the low over the high up. This is counterintuitive to our thinking. Um, Micah 5.1 explains this a little bit. It says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. 
this was um, more than just like an illustration of what happened. This was a proclamation of the state of Israel. So uh, in 2 Kings 25, this is after Micah says this to Israel. Uh, for any, in, in this time in history and in this location geographically, this striking on the cheek was a disgraceful, dishonoring, and humiliating way to defeat somebody. It's, it's like being slapped, Right? So what Micah is saying in verse one is Israel will be disgraced, Israel will be insulted, Israel will be humiliated. And in 2 Kings 25, King Zedekiah was pulled out of his position as king and all of his children were put under the sword in front of him and they gouged out his eyes, they slapped him on the face, and they carried away him chains. Israel was humiliated. Israel was disgraced. It was because of her sin. And so we, as, as we read through Micah, and we feel this emotion that comes with this recognition of sin, this being pulled into correction, we can relate to the emotions of feeling humiliated and disgraced. But it's actually through that weakness that the gospel wins. The hope of Micah is that the gospel is for the humiliated. The gospel is for us who carry that shame, who feel like we have to make up for our mistakes who feel like I've got to make myself a better person. Christianity's not about us making ourselves better people. It's about giving our lives up for Jesus. Mark 8:34, if anyone wants to follow me, you've got to give up yourself and come after me. God's plan this this when you pick a dodgeball team, you don't pick people like me. You pick people like Mark, people like Thomas, right? Exactly. I've heard there's a basketball team going, and Brady picked Thomas. People like Austin, like just... I'm ready to throw some dodgeballs at people's faces. I'm not limber or quick or strong. I cannot put zip on a foam ball. Thankfully, the gospel doesn't work like dodgeball because I would be left out. And I'm having flashbacks to elementary school. I'm sure you are too. I'm sorry. That's some of the shame that we carry together. We can cry in the hallway later. God's plan for salvation was hope for the humiliated. That those of us who are terrified that our past is going to come back and destroy our future, that I've done too much, that, that the hope of the gospel can't be for me because you don't know what I've done. 
You don't know what I've said. You don't know who I've hurt and how many times. You don't know the secret things that I'm not even willing to say out loud, much less confess to someone who says that they're for me. I don't know if I can trust that person. God's plan is hope for the humiliated. And so when we think about this, deliverance is necessary. Deliverance is forever. Look at verse two. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little. They didn't even make it in the list. They're not in the genealogy. They're too little. There's not enough people there to be considered a clan of Judah. From you, shall come forth for me, one who is ruler in Israel. The small, the insignificant, the shamed, the disgraced. It's from this place that God brings out his Messiah. His plan is hope for the humiliated. Micah's prophecy came true. Actually, all of Micah's prophecies come true. If you read back through this, and I hope that you do, it's seven chapters. Every promise, everything that is foretold in Micah comes true. This is the best one. That from Bethlehem, Ephrathah of Judah came the deliverer, came the promised Messiah. Micah 5, 6, they shall... They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. This is the redeemed. Those who, um, who the, the Messiah, the deliverer comes to save. He then gives power. This is kind of looking ahead to the Holy Spirit. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword in the land of Nimrod at its entrance. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. For a people who lived in constant fear of invasion from neighboring countries, because it happened often. They were attacked by the Philistines constantly. They were attacked by the Midianites constantly. They They just were basically waiting for the little fish to be eaten up and gobbled up by the big fish so the big fish could then come take them. Assyria and Babylon were the big fish. And they took out the Philistines, they took out the Midianites, they took out the Ammonites, and then they, they're closing in on Jerusalem. And these people live in Israel with this constant fear of invasion, that their sin is coming to threaten their future. And the promise in Micah 5, 6, at the end of our passage is that when the Messiah comes, when the Deliverer comes, you don't have to be afraid of that anymore because you will rule over Assyria. The power of the Messiah in his people will have authority over sin. And it's not this power in us so that we would boast in that. It's power from the Holy Spirit so that we would boast in Christ. It's actually boasting in our weakness that glorifies God and puts to death the powers of darkness. Deliverance is forever. And every week, um, communion preaches this gospel. 
that deliverance is necessary and that deliverance is forever. We preach this to one another. We preach this to ourselves. Um, Band, you can come back up. Communion is a receiving. The nature of communion actually humbles the person taking it because you didn't do anything to put that bread there, not even the people that made it. It's, it's more than a symbol. Communion is a receiving of the thing that you can't get for yourself. It's, it's putting something that didn't come from you and bringing it into your soul. In order to receive deliverance, you have to accept the deliverer. And so this meal is a family meal. It's for those of us who have confessed, I need deliverance. And if you have not made that decision, then I wanna just ask you to, to sit where you are and just consider, do I need deliverance? Consider that, that God has sent the Messiah, Jesus, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so as we take communion this morning, Take the the cup and the bread and confess your sins. Confess your sin to God. He knows and he's already forgiven you. And so for those of us who do confess Jesus as our deliverance, we take the bread, we take the cup, the body and blood of, of Jesus broken and poured out. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. Let's share this meal together. Please join me at the table.